Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. My guest this week on Soul of the Nation is Tim Alberta, an award-winning journalist, staff writer for The Atlantic Magazine, and author of the best-selling new book, The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory. There's a familiar title for many of us. American evangelicalism in an age of extremism. If we think of America as a blessed nation, uh, which I certainly do in some ways, I think we also have to view it as sort of a cursed nation in that the original sin of slavery continues to rear its its ugly head and continues to live on in our political and social and religious skirmishes in this nation in a way that it doesn't in, in many other parts of the world. Alberta is the son of an evangelical pastor who was raised in Michigan. Uh, his new book raises the eternal and important question, what is the purpose of the Christian church? What's the purpose of all this? So, Tim Alberta, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jim, for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. The question I like to ask my guests from the outset, uh, there's no right or wrong answer, but whatever it resonates in you is, how is your spirit these days, Tim? How you've just done this book, you've got a lot of good attention to it. We have, as you point out, a major election coming up for all of us this year, which is, in my view, a test of democracy, but also a test of faith. Uh, how is your spirit these days? Well, um, I'd say uh, overall, given given the circumstances, uh, you know that, that, that you just pointed to, it's been a, it's been a hectic season and. We're heading into obviously a, another hectic season, and um, for for uh, for all the the swirling craziness and uncertainty, uh, I feel I feel awfully good, and 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 my spirit feels very much at peace. And um, and that's not to say that uh, tomorrow uh, or the next day or six months from now it'll it'll be in the same place. Uh, I hope that it is, but as of as of now, uh, as of this conversation, my spirit is calm, and uh, and you know I, I try I try my very best, and I, I don't always succeed, but I try my always best to to remember uh, the voice of the Lord in Psalm forty six. Just be still and know that I am God, and that that uh, that tends to that tends to be my my default uh, mechanism for for trying to uh, keep everything else in check. Well, I often use that verse every single day. Uh, and it's good advice to our listeners that whatever the lack of peace there is in this upcoming electoral season, keeping our spirits at peace is critical for even responding to all that. So thanks for the good word to all of us. To start, um, why did you decide to call your book, The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory? Familiar phrase to many of us who use the Lord's Prayer. And what do you mean by each of those words as it relates to contemporary white evangelicals? I was just recently, um, maybe, I don't know, a, a couple of months ago, I guess, I was, I was looking through a, a lot of old boxes in my parents' basement. And um, 
And I found something and showed it to my right, wife right away, and she got such a kick out of it. But it was actually – I had stumbled onto a collection of old drawings from the pews when I was a little boy, um, you know, probably six or seven years old, just um, doodles and, and, and random scribblings. And there was this one little pew card, uh, like a visitor's card that they're supposed to fill out, where I had drawn a, a picture of my dad who up front in his robes preaching – and then uh, all around his uh, his body uh, that I had drawn this cartoon, I I had written out the Lord's Prayer, but then in all caps at the at the very bottom, sort of uh, like forming a platform that he was standing on, I had written uh, those those words: "For thine is the, the kingdom and the power and the glory forever." And and my wife sort of got a kick out of that because of because of uh, because of the title of the book, uh, and also uh, she even suggested maybe we should try to um, change the uh, the cover art last minute. Of of course, that's uh, never going to happen. But um, but 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 also because I had talked with her, and I write in the prologue of the book about how since I was a child, those specific words thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever had always, um, always sort of haunted me and always, uh, loomed large in my imagination. Um, there was something, there was something, uh, obviously very profound and even I would say, uh, somewhat mysterious in those words to me as a child. And, and, I think the reason to fast forward all the way to present day, Jim, the, the reason that I wanted to structure the book around those words is because I think that they represent both the the, the straight line, uh, to, to borrow from C.S. Lewis for a moment, they represent the straight line, the, the, the goal, uh, the standard for the Christian, uh, which is to say that... Uh, you know, we are called to pursue and be a part of God's kingdom. We are called to, uh, and we are told that we are given great power, but that it is, it is, it is power in Jesus Christ. And, and we are told that our only glory is in, in knowing him and in exalting him and finding our identity in him. That, that, that standard, that, uh, that straight line is there for us, uh, as, as followers of Jesus. And yet, far too often we are tempted to uh, pursue the crooked line, which is a competing kingdom, and it is a competing source of power and a competing source of glory. And uh, I wanted to, I wanted to take all of the reporting, the storytelling, uh, the journey that I'd been on personally. I wanted to frame it around those big eternal themes to help demonstrate both uh, perhaps where we've where we have strayed from the path where we have gotten things wrong but also to encourage uh, anyone reading to understand uh, how we might get back onto the path and and what the what the ultimate goal should be so as you and I well know there there probably is not any phrase or uh, paragraph that's repeated more often in churches than the Lord's Prayer uh, it's often every week in many churches, and yet I've often thought it's one of the least understood or reflected upon things that we say again and again without looking for what it means, both then and now. The kingdom, the power, and glory, now and forever, it says, on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, that whole split that we do again and again. So 
So very quickly, I like the crooked path and the straight path language very much. Um, how, how each of those words, they're, they're really worth, the, the book is in three sections for my listeners here, kingdom, power, and glory. Um, uh, the crooked path and the straight path on each of those, kingdom, power, and glory. Briefly say what you think is the heart of that. Sure. So, um, it, you know, the, the kingdom is... Uh is something that Jesus talks about incessantly in the Gospels, talks about the kingdom of heaven or, or the kingdom of God. He uses those terms somewhat interchangeably. And, you know, in, in one of his parables, Christ talks about the kingdom of heaven being like a treasure that is buried in a field that a man uh, unwittingly discovers. And, and Jesus says that the man once he finds that treasure, that he puts it back in the ground and he runs off and he sells all of his possessions, everything that he owns, every earthly possession, he sells it and he takes the proceeds from those sales and he comes back and he buys that field. And the point is very, uh, I think, unambiguous. I, I don't think you need to be a, a theologian or a Bible scholar to, to, to appreciate what Jesus is saying, that the worth of the kingdom of heaven is such that you must be willing to sell out for it. You must be willing to shed every other identity, every other allegiance, that, that you have to be willing to sell it all, give, give everything else away in order that you, may, that you might acquire the kingdom of heaven. Unfortunately, um, one of those identities, one of those allegiances that I, that I believe Jesus is telling us that we have to get rid of is our sort of national identity, our, our, uh, and certainly our kind of cultural tribal identity. And, uh, as I, as I write about early in the book, I do believe that the, uh, that the American identity has become a source of idolatry to, to far too many believers in this country. And you can see Jim, why that's the case. You can see how it's happened. This is, this is an extraordinary nation and and uh it its story is uh so is so fantastic uh it, it, around its founding and its um its conception that you can understand why there is this desire to sort of baptize the the american story and to turn this nation into something that is consecrated in the eyes of God and believe that because we have been so uniquely blessed that we need to fight for America or perhaps more accurately fight for our idealized version of America uh, as if salvation itself hangs in the balance. So that American, that American kingdom comes to be in competition with that kingdom of God, even if it's uh, subconsciously. Um, so that's the first section, and and, and I'll be brief, more brief uh, in describing the second two. The power, I think, is is we have to understand that for those who uh, have begun to idolize and 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 worship and exalt this American kingdom and fear that it is under attack from uh, secular leftist forces in the culture and in the government there the question becomes well what are you going to do to protect it and the answer for for, for many uh, believers is to acquire political power and to wield that political power to to subjugate uh, their opponents and and defeat their adversaries. And that pursuit of political power, I believe, is um, is in competition with the with, with the power of 
the Christ in us, the power to renew us, the power to make us more like Jesus every day and to, and to, and to then go out to all the nations and to share the gospel, to share that saving power of Jesus. Um, and that then of course ties into section three of the book, the glory, which is all about the, the, the credibility of the witness and how, uh, when we are supposed to be exalting the Lord Jesus Christ and, uh, you know, the, 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 the triumph over the grave and the transformational power of, uh, of Christ resurrected in our lives. Uh, instead we are, uh, exalting ourselves. We are exalting, uh, a, a, a strange, ideal of uh of uh, of the of the conquest of our enemies and the power we have accumulated to protect this earthly kingdom and so all of it is backwards and what i'm trying to emphasize is that um is that running parallel to these false kingdoms and this false power and this false glory is the real article that we we might yet see again and we might yet uh, uh, pursue properly if we can just sort of strip away uh, some of the some of the 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 idols and some of the 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 false rhetoric uh, that that have come to warp our sense of who Christ really is and who we are called to be and as you point out this temptation to power was one of Satan's temptations of Jesus at the beginning of his ministry that's right uh, the, the epigraph of the book in fact is uh, is the scene in which Satan takes Jesus up to a very high place and shows him in a moment of time all the kingdoms of the world and says to him, uh, all of this can be yours if all of the power, all of the glory can be yours if you will just bow down and worship me. And of course, um, of course, the, the, the symmetry here in Jesus refusing that temptation and in rebuking Satan and saying, you know, uh, that, that it is written that you shall worship the Lord your God and, and him only shall you serve. The, the, the symmetry is pretty amazing because um, uh, for two reasons. If you flash way back to the Garden of Eden, of course, uh, with, with the first Adam, this was the temptation that, that Adam and Eve fell victim to, uh, ultimately to, to, be, um, to be exalted and to, uh, to give into this temptation to, um, to think that they could know better than God, that they, that they or at least to know as much uh, as God did, and along comes Jesus, the the second and the and the better and the true Adam, to 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 triumph over that temptation. But what's also interesting is the language that Jesus uses in one of the Gospels, where he actually says to Satan in that moment, he says, "Get behind me, Satan," which then later is the exact identical language that he uses with uh, Peter when when. Peter, uh, having just learned uh, of Jesus's um, sort of ultimate destiny of God's grand design, in, in that he would be uh, handed over to the authorities, that he would be uh, that he would be punished, that he would ultimately be killed, um, and Peter is 
uh, mortified. He, he's 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 terrified and he's he's appalled by hearing this. And and he rebukes the the gospel says he pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him and t- basically says, "No, don't you know? Like you're supposed to you're supposed to crush the Romans. You're supposed to you're supposed to be our." our strong man. You're supposed to be our deliverer. You're supposed to be our retribution, Jesus. Don't you know this? And, and Jesus says to him, says to Peter, exactly what he said to Jesus in the wilderness temptation. He says, get behind me, Satan, for your eyes are fixed not on the things of God, but, uh, but on the things of man. And that is, I think, incredibly revealing. And, it's, and, if, and if Peter, who, you know, St. Peter, uh, who, who is, a, is such a is such a wonderful big brother to us in the faith and someone who uh, has uh, so many uh, amazing lessons for us as believers. But if he could fall victim to this, then of course we all could as well. And it's, it's the same temptation over and over and over again to, to, to turn to the sword instead of to the cross. And, and that is, I think, the, the age-old dilemma for many Christians. It's incredibly important uh, reflection on all this. In fact, to get to the glory, uh, you really have to say, get behind me, Satan, to the temptations of national power or tribal power. Uh, I remember my, back to our, our fathers, uh, when Jerry Falwell was rising up with the moral majority, my evangelical dad, Plymouth Brethren, we were Plymouth Brethren, very evangelical, as you know, said to me way back then, he said, you know, Jerry Falwell is not really an evangelical, I don't think. I think he's a fundamentalist who just wants power was my dad's comment. And you mentioned uh, what I call this this political takeover of evangelicalism. Uh, you mentioned some of the political operatives on the Republican side and the right Republican side who pulled this off. You mentioned Richard Vigory as one, one of those. Richard Vigory and I have become friends when we talk, part because his Catholic uh, faith, which is devout, has turned him against the death penalty. So we have worked together on bringing people across the spectrum on the death penalty. But what Richard said to me when I was reading that part of your book, I recall what Richard once said to me. He, he bragged, actually, that he and Paul Weirich and Terry Dolan and all the rest, that they literally went. He said, we went to Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson, but Falwell in particular, and said to them, here, here's what he said, give me your mailing list. And Vigory was the guru of direct mail at that time. Give us your mailing list to form the moral majority, and we will make you household words in America. Give us your mailing list to use for this political purpose, and we will make you household words in America. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure does. And and listen, uh, as much as I want to believe that I am... uh, uniquely insulated against that, that my faith is pure, that I am, that I'm better, uh, and that I would make the right decision. Um, I am, I am just as depraved and I am just as vulnerable and I am just as given to the pursuit of that power, uh, that as any of these other people are who I write about in the book and, uh, you know, there, but for the grace of God go, I, I, I think what's important to, you know the reason that I I I mention the 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 other biblical references here uh, in in talking about the temptation that Jesus faced. It's really 
back to the age of Constantine. I mean, we've had 1700 years of this same story playing out time and time and time again with followers of Jesus who, uh, for reasons of fame and power and celebrity, or just for reasons of, of, uh, of fear and self-preservation when they are uh, under threat in their given uh, culture, in their given society um, uh, at any given period of time, they they fall into this trap of of uh, um, of you know seeking first the the power that is temporary and fleeting and ultimately quite finite but it it seems it seems wonderful for for a time and um and i think that only by really studying and and dissecting understanding those mistakes of the past can we hopefully avoid them in the future and that's a that's a big part of the reason at, at least uh that i wanted to write about the last 50 or 60 years of american evangelicalism to to truly understand what has gone wrong so that future generations might learn from it to me identity is crucial to all of this it's the heart of your book uh, are we christians first and everything else second or are we those other identities first and Christian gets put aside again and again to the to the tribal thing. Uh, you say you were raised, as you say, the son of a white conservative Republican pastor in a white conservative Republican church in a white conservative Republican town. I was raised this, 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 the same way. Uh, tell us about your father and your experience growing up as an evangelical, as I was too, in Detroit, in a Detroit suburb like Brighton. And what was your experience like, and did you see any early signs then of what you later called the evangelical crack-up of the church? You know, my dad uh, was an amazing guy for a whole host of reasons, and um, I, I could fill several podcast episodes just talking about him and his story. Um He's gone now. He's been called home to be with the Lord, and, and I miss him every day. I think about him every day. Um, he, he he had such a unique and extraordinary journey that um, that I, I feel just compelled to to set the table whenever somebody asks me about uh, everything that came later, because I, I think to understand where he came from is is uh, really quite relevant. He was raised in a in a broken, unbelieving home. And uh, he declared himself in as an undergraduate to be an atheist. He read um, he read all, all of the the, the books and uh, Bertrand Russell and the rest, and and decided that there really was no God, and that uh, he he certainly hadn't seen proof of one. And he uh, wound up uh, finding a, a very lucrative career working in finance in New York, and uh, my mother. Uh, his high school sweetheart was uh, working for ABC Radio in Manhattan, and they were living the the high life. They were, uh, you know, they had a had a uh, uh, a nice uh, a nice home and a Cadillac and a couple of high paying jobs and all the cocktail party invites that you could ever want, and things seemed great. Uh, except that they weren't great because, um, d- despite all of those worldly successes. My dad felt this, th- just this crushing emptiness inside of him that, and, and, and just felt convinced that something was missing. And even though he was such a, a sort of a militant atheist, he nonetheless one day wound up wandering into this church in the Hudson Valley 
And he heard the gospel there for the first time. And just like that, his defenses came crumbling down and he uh, went to the altar and he prayed to accept Christ and he took communion that same day. And it completely transformed who he was. It completely, uh, it, it just turned his life upside down. And long story short, as if all of that wasn't dramatic enough, uh, he felt the call to enter the ministry, to leave behind his finance career, leave really his entire life behind that he'd known. And, and he did that. And so um, the more I learned about that story as I grew older, I can even remember being a kid when, you know, we had very little money. We had, we, we were, you know, we weren't poor, but we, we just, we, um, we got by and we, there, there was a lot of hand-me-downs and a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, just, uh, uh, especially as the town I grew up in, which, uh, is in the sort of exurbs of Detroit and was a very modest working class town when we moved there as a kid. Uh, and that town is called Brighton, Michigan, but then it started to grow and it started to populate. And a lot of people started to move in there as sort of a bedroom community to Ann Arbor and Lansing and Detroit. And, um, and as we started to see some of the material comforts of, of friends and neighbors and people in our community, you know, my brothers and I would sometimes sort of joke like, gosh, you know, why'd this guy have to give up his finance career? That, 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 that might have been nice to grow up as a banker's kid instead of as a pastor's kid. And of course, now that I'm old enough and mature enough and hopefully wise enough to understand uh, why he made the decisions that he did and why he pursued the calling that he felt, I'm, I'm immensely grateful to him. But it's a funny thing to grow up as a pastor's kid, and you know this, Jim. Obviously, it's it's um, you you feel a certain, uh, at least I did. I felt a certain um, wariness of my surroundings, a a certain skepticism, and it's funny. I never felt any suspicion of the gospel itself. Um, I, I, Jesus uh, uh, came into my heart when I was a little boy and he's never left. And I've never had any crisis of faith. I've never, I've never felt any, uh, any discernible uh, skepticism of, of the gospel, even though I've, I've read some of the books uh, and I've, I've, I've interrogated my own faith and I've gone on some of the intellectual journeys to, to unpack uh, who Jesus of Nazareth was and is this thing that I believe in really credible? And, and I've reached the conclusion time again that yes, it is. Um, but even as my faith was quite strong, I think I began to really feel disillusioned with some of the trappings of the, uh, of the church, some of the some of the extracurriculars of the institution of evangelicalism, just the way that certain people would 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 talk and behave, and um, you, you started to you started to uh, wonder um, if if God was. Uh, sovereign over all things. And if the kingdom that we are called to is the kingdom of heaven, if we are called to be citizens of that kingdom and followers of Jesus, um, then why why is there this sort of nagging, pervasive anxiety that you that you sense in the church over some of these cultural things? And, and why is there uh, at times this willingness to accommodate and and justify and enable things that uh, that that we would that, that that we are not called to justify and accommodate and enable. So a lot of that uh, sorting through those questions and trying to deal with some of that disillusionment really became central to 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 my faith journey as I grew older. Well, this uh, conversation uh, even underscores what I felt in the book, reading the book. Um, our backgrounds have so many parallels the, the the 
white identity I just referred to in, in your Brighton church and the white identity in my little home church, uh, the Dunning Park Chapel in Detroit, in Redford Township. Um, what happened for me, uh, what caused my break was, I, I, you know, I was now listening to my city and reading the papers and I was a teenage kid uh, and hearing the news and there were some big questions that just uh, wouldn't go away. Why do we live the way we do in white Detroit and why things seem so different just a few blocks away in black Detroit across Eight Mile Road? And, and why wasn't anybody talking about that in my church? And an elder, so I wasn't getting answers, so I went into the city and I just showed up at black churches, uh, very graciously received, and I took jobs alongside young black men who were um, my age, but I was making money for college and they were supporting families and their life stories were so different than mine and their life stories finally changed mine. But an elder realizing this in my Dunning Park Chapel took me aside one day and said, Jim, you have to understand that Christianity has nothing to do with racism. That's political and our faith is personal. And that's the day I recall I left home and uh, my home church and my home, my faith. Uh, And I didn't have words to come back to him that night, but later uh, I found them when I came back to my faith, because like you, I could never quite get rid of Jesus. He kind of hung with me the whole time. And these were the words, God is personal, but never private. God is personal, but never private. So you mentioned evangelicals had been marinated in grievance for eight years of Obama, the Obama presidency, and so were ripe for the political opportunism and manipulation when Trump came along and took advantage of those trends. But all this, as you know, and I know, didn't start with Obama and Trump. It was not a coincidence that Obama, of course, was the first black president of the United States and the biggest evangelical denomination, the Southern Baptists, who you talk about extensively in your book, was founded by slaveholders and for the purpose of maintaining slavery. So now we're entering this this another presidential election year, which means that we're seeing a lot of media articles uh, on white evangelicals, and your book has really helped that tremendously. Uh, and as you know, the former president has been on the campaign trail using language about immigrants poisoning the blood of America and words like vermin and other racist authoritarian language. In your reporting, how big of a factor was and is race for white evangelicals? And how big a factor was it and is it for white evangelical support of Donald Trump? It's one of these things where you say, uh, where you answer that question by saying, well, it's a, it's a factor. It's a pretty big factor. Uh, how do you quantify it? And I've struggled with that, Jim. Uh, I've struggled with it on both counts. So, so I'll take the, I'll take the, the, the church part of it first. Um, you know, w- when you, it's interesting. Um, I grew up in a church that was so thoroughly white. And, and, and I mean, like, I mean it to say that if there if there was a black visitor or an Asian or Hispanic visitor, um, any non-white person in the church, um, it was uh, like you would do a double take. I mean, it just it was that unusual. And in fact, my wife, who is not white uh, and who uh, was actually uh, raised a Hindu and and came to Christ um, in her mid twenties. Um, the first time she came to my hometown and, and to my home church, I mean, she was like, 
just her her jaw was on the floor. Just you know, she just had never seen a community that was that was quite so homogenous. Um, and I think that when you're in a community like that, you are not even aware of what your blind spots are, right? You're, you're not, you, you just, you can't be fully cognizant of, uh, of the, the racial dimension because you just don't know anything all that different uh, from, from, from your upbringing. And so as I, as I look back on it now, uh, we were not Southern Baptists, but we uh, were, um, uh, part of a, uh, of a denomination, the EPC, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, that t- tends to be uh, overwhelmingly white. And um, there was a, a specific anecdote that I share in the second chapter of the book where another EPC pastor, a family friend, how when Obama was elected, he read this letter uh, to his congregation on a Sunday morning from the pastor of one of the largest churches in the denomination, who was himself a black man, who basically just wrote this letter after Obama was elected to all of his fellow EPC pastors saying, look, you know, brothers, I know that you may not agree with this man on some of his policy positions, some of his politics, but I I think it's important to recognize uh, that, uh, you know the 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 imagery of uh, of two little black girls running around the White House calling it home. How special that is to our black brothers and sisters, and that we need to to celebrate that and realize this is a, a special moment for them. And I was so struck by not only the response and the 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 vitriol and the anger and the resentment that his reading that letter to his congregation stirred up. But I was also struck by the fact that I had never heard of that letter, that that uh, that my dad had not read that letter to our church congregation or, or even mentioned it to us at home. Um, I felt like I was relatively plugged into our, our subculture uh, in the EPC, and I had never heard of it. Uh, and I think I, I raised that example just to, just to, I think, nod toward the the reality that some of the some of the racial uh, bias, some of our prejudices, aren't even explicit as much as they maybe are implicit, and you know, and 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 that we we wrestle with, uh, you know, if if you are a follower of, of Christ and if you are a, a student of the Bible, then you know, you your 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 daily uh, scripture time, your your studies uh, in, in the Bible are meant to be a mirror that we hold up to ourselves to see where we are deficient and, and where, we, uh, where we must grow and become more like Christ. And I think um, for far too long in, uh, in American evangelicalism and in, in, in the white evangelical movement, there's at best been an unwillingness to grapple with the race question and to to in, to examine in an honest way uh, the degree to which any racial prejudice or racial resentment has shaped our 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 um, our marriage of faith and politics and kind of cultural grievance um, and so I think that both in the case of uh, the kind of crack up of the American evangelical movement and in the rallying around Donald Trump, I think that, uh, and I wrote about that whole phenomenon, obviously, much more in depth in my first book. I think that the the the, uh, the racial component looms large and and probably figures uh, uh, 
in a bigger way than mo- than many of us are comfortable acknowledging. And yet to this day, I still really do struggle to quantify it, Jim. And I've tried and, and, and um, I can offer anecdotes and experiences, but in terms of trying to put any sort of hard numbers on it, it, it it's really hard um, because for every really dispiriting anecdote uh, or, or experience that I will have um, in my travels, I will the next day almost inevitably come across some counterexample with uh, a, a bunch of uh, a, a bunch of white evangelical Protestants who you know somewhere in the deep south are a part of some SBC church and they are spearheading some amazing initiative uh, aimed at tackling racial reconciliation uh, at uh, often at great personal cost to to themselves and, and to their relationships and so there's it's it's just a struggle and I think that uh, uh, you know there, there there's a there's there's always going to be a struggle probably because uh, if if we think of America as a blessed nation, uh, which I certainly do in some ways, I think we also have to view it as sort of a cursed nation in that the original sin of slavery continues to rear its its ugly head and continues to live on in our political and social and religious skirmishes in this nation in a way that it doesn't in, in many other parts of the world. I think that, that's so important as we are facing this next election, uh, our white idolatrous identity, I would put it as you have said before, is so key to this. In your epilogue, you, uh, which I reread again this morning, uh, you talk about the completely different constituencies of Brighton churches, so white, and the churches just up the road in Flint, uh, many black, and how each relates so differently to the issues at stake in this election, to what the purpose of the church is, uh, my listeners know that I've also got a new book coming out around Easter time called The False White Gospel. The False White Gospel. That's what's at stake here. It's not just politics and Democrat, Republican, partisan, but there's a false gospel, a white gospel, that has deeply infected our white churches. Um, and my, the fault is, how does Jesus, ad, you talk in the book, Jesus' admonition to love our neighbor, love our neighbor as ourselves, even to love our enemies, <laughs> to care for the sick, the elderly, the poor, the outcast, fit into this mission and purpose of the church, not just in individual or corporate works of charity, but in public policies that we enact together as a nation. And what does the church do to encourage that? In other words, what is the proper role of politics in the church? How do we have politics be shaped by our faith and not our uh, uh face shaped by our politics. Uh, how did your work on this book, how did your understanding of this proper role for what what kind of politics uh, like the civil rights movement did in the black churches? Black churches, without without the black churches, there wouldn't have been a civil rights movement, as you know so well. And what is, how has this changed over time? And what did all your work on this tell you about this critical issue of race and the difference in Brighton and Flint churches going forward? Whenever we come back to these 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 questions around politics in the church and and what is the proper role, what is the improper role, uh, often it can seem like a very fine line. And how do we walk it? Um, I think that there is kind of a a um, the, the, there there is a principle at work here, which is to say that Jesus 
uh, and a pastor said this to me not long ago. He put it uh, pretty eloquently, and I, I'll try my best to to echo the way that he put it. He said, you know, if you look through the Gospels, um, Jesus has no problem being political, uh, being you know, and, and and I have never called for any sort of a um, uh, an abandonment of our civic duty, a, a withdrawal from the public square, because I don't think that that's biblical. So Jesus you know, was political with some of what he prescribed, some of what uh, he diagnosed, but Jesus was not partisan. And I think, I, and I think the difference between being political and partisan is that uh, it, it comes back to this idea of identity. If your identity is found in Christ, then you are able to, I think, fairly diagnose uh, and, and, uh, and accurately prescribe certain things that are going to be upsetting to members of any partisan tribe, but that doesn't bother you because you are not yourself a part of a partisan tribe and you are not, even more so, you are not finding your identity rooted in the membership uh, in, in that partisan tribe. And so it's interesting when people will raise the example of the civil rights movement um, or even the abolitionist movement before that, um, you know, what, what you saw there in its in its uh, in its most effective forms was a a practicing of uh, of sort of biblical principle and uh, and and an effectuating of the um, you know the, 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 a, a living out a putting into practice of of the uh, of the highest ideals of the Sermon on the Mount. And of of Jesus's life and his lessons and his commands uh, to us, um, but doing it in a way that was always, uh, I think, uh, always defensible in that it drew its roots not from partisan platform but from biblical mandate, right? Um, and and I think um, whenever we find ourselves in a situation where um, we we begin to question. Uh, okay, is this is is this going too far in one direction or the other? Am I beginning to um, am I beginning to uh, sort of veer too far in the direction of partisan tribal thinking? Because uh, it because it's always a matter of of um, of degree, and it's always a danger of mission creep. That at one moment you're squarely in the in the in, in the um, in the camp of your actions and your deeds and your uh, and your policy opinions being rooted in in Christ, and the next minute uh, they're not. And and so it's you you have to be on guard against uh, that that uh, slippery slope. And if you if you struggle with that. And I know that many of your listeners have, whether whether it's whether they're uh, you know uh, uh, card carrying Democrats or card carrying Republicans. I, I, I mean, I think that this is a universal struggle. Um, I, I just can't emphasize this enough. If you if you are recentering every morning in Scripture, and if you are uh, if you are holding holding Scripture up as that mirror and challenging yourself, challenging where your idols may be. And interrogating yourself honestly to ask, you know, am I doing this to advance a, a, an, a, an, a, an earthly kingdom 
a, a fleeting partisan political platform, or am I doing it for uh, uh, for the betterment of my neighbor? Am I doing it uh, out of uh, out of a conviction about who I am to be uh, as a as a mini Christ, as a little Christ? Then um, then then I think that we can we can continue to to walk that line and to get a handle on these things, even when they're really tough, which in an election year and in an environment like this one, you know, Jim, it's going to be tough. It's, 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 um, it's as tough as it's ever been. And I don't deny that for a lot of people of good faith, pun intended, um, they struggle mightily with these questions and they feel almost tormented by them. Um, and, you know, and, I think we have ultimately as our best resource the 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 gospels and to hear Jesus's own voice every day as we as we uh, as we meditate on these struggles and as we try to make sense out of um, where those lines are and how we how we guard against crossing them we have an ally in 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 that in that struggle let me commend you again tim for this book and for this conversation very helpful getting down to uh, what's at the core of this and and how do we identify politics that is decidedly antichrist uh in our political narrative and the politics that are indeed the politics of Jesus. So I'm grateful to you for you and your work, and I'm grateful for this time time together. And uh, uh, bless you during the game and bless all of us going forward into this uh, critical election year. Well, Jim, it's been a pleasure. It really has been. And uh, I, I appreciate you. I appreciate your work. And uh, I appreciate your, your kind words. So, so blessings to you and to your loved ones as well. Thank you very much for having me. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you like. Blessings for the soul of the nation. Thank you all.